Good morning, good abend, que pasa mi amigos, me llamo Wendell Wallace, standing amongst the tallest, here to talk about a podcast named Wendell's World in Sports, a show talking about what is happening on the basketball of courts, the football of fields, to reveal my thoughts and opinions and other worldly dimensions about what is happening in the everyday of college basketball, my Georgetown Hoyas, and the NBA, to talk about who's doing poorly, who's doing well in college football and the NFL for Messias. And my Mademoiselles. Born and raised from the metropolitan area of Washington, D.C. and Montgomery County, M.D., this skillful sports talker MC will take you on a sports field expedition that will leave you with no other decision than to make listening to Wendell's World in Sports the Podcast your main mission. Treasure the pleasure together as I discuss the important sports topics that are a must and crush and destroy it like the New England Patriots or Pittsburgh Steelers pass rush. TJ, watch out for the next episode and make sure you download, subscribe with great pride so people will highly rate along with giving great reviews to create clues for people to follow so this podcast can remain the king like LeBron through yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Groin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. Good morning, good abend, bonjour, bonsoir, que pasa mi amigo, shalom, wassalam alaikum, namaste, konnichiwa, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Doing hopefully everything that you can to make your world, to make your block, to make your space and place a better place to be by listening, learning, shutting up, and doing what you need to do to make your area, to make your neighborhood, to make your place of employment, to make your household a much better place to be. Hope that you're doing all that through love, peace, unity, harmony, understanding, shutting up, listening to those of a different culture, listening to those of a different mindset, listening to those of a different gender and a different race and a different religion and such, and doing what we need to do to make this world a better place. Saying that, let me get right into this, man, because it's been about Super Bowl's been over for about, oh, I say, what time is it right now? So I'm guessing it's been about 15, 20 minutes. I think that the uh, celebration and handing out the Lombardi has been done. I don't do the pregame. I don't do the postgame. I just watch the uh, football game in itself, the totality of the football game. And then I go ahead and I'm going to give you my full emotion. I'm going to be riffing. They really didn't have enough time to do any type of... um, research and putting together a show in a way that I normally like to do it. I'm just going to go ahead. I'm just going to a riff and get this out as soon as possible. Get this out for a Monday because it's the end of the football season at the end of another season. And as I was mentioning to somebody, as I was watching this game, this is the reason why when I was speaking about Brian Flores before in the last podcast, where what was his agenda? What was his Avenue? What was his motivation? What were his tactics? What was his hopes and plans for that lawsuit alleging that Stephen Ross was telling him to lose football games and 
the need for black coaches to become head coaches and what would I, I, I just feel after this game, Brian Flores just screwed himself in terms of uh, not only trying to get, trying to improve his chances of becoming a head football coach anytime soon, but also making any type of progress toward black coaches who are qualified to become true candidates and get true opportunities to become NFL black head coaches when you have a game like this, when you have a season-ending game like this, when you have storylines like this in terms of what the Los Angeles Rams had to overcome. You're thinking about the Cincinnati Bengals and the season that they had, as I always, always, always mentioned before. Every single season, there's going to be a team that starts the NFL season where none of us think they're going to have any type of success whatsoever. And you take a look at the beginning of the season and the expectations for the Cincinnati Bengals and what they were supposed to do to end up so close to winning a Super Bowl. And almost harkens me back to the Arizona Cardinals when they played in the Super Bowl against the Pittsburgh Steelers and Santonio Holmes caught that magical pass from Ben Roethlisberger. And you're speaking about that game and you're speaking about the uh, Arizona Cardinals um, history of dysfunction and ineptitude led by the Bidwells and for decades the Cincinnati Bengals have been punching bags in terms of ineptitude, in terms of jokes and being clowned about their lack of success and some of the things that uh, Mike, own, uh, that, um, Mike Brown does as a Cincinnati Bengals owner. And nobody would expect coming into this season, second year quarterback Joe Burrow coming off a season-ending injury. We didn't know the impact that Jamar Chase would have. The rookie from LSU, again, Joe Burrow coming off an injury he sustained last season, late in the season against the Washington football team coming into this season. We didn't know exactly what he was going to produce. We didn't know exactly he was going to be this good. And even moving on in the season, we didn't know that Joe Burrow was going to be this. We didn't know the Cincinnati Bengals were going to be like this. And for them to come so close, just like the Arizona Cardinals, in terms of winning that Super Bowl and giving a downtrodden franchise that opportunity to win that um, to win that Lombardi, man, you know, you say, hey, man, you got to be happy and you got to say this is a successful season, which it is for the Cincinnati Bengals. But man, in this sport, there are no there are no participation trophies and there are no pat on the backs and attaboys for coming in second place. It's either Super Bowl getting the first round pick or misery. So it's um, it's bittersweet. Because we don't know exactly what's going to be happening with the Cincinnati Bengals moving forward. Yes, they have a strong foundation in terms of some of the skill players that they have who haven't even begun to scratch how great they can be when you're speaking about quarterback Joe Burrow, when you're speaking about wide receiver Jamar Chase, when you're speaking about a true wide number two wide receiver in T. Higgins, when you're speaking about a multi-versatile, talented, top six, five running back in Joe Mixon. All of those things are in place. But boy, they got to get that offensive line going and they got to do some other things to improve. But, you know, as I mentioned before, when you're speaking about the, the Bengals and what they've been through, Going forward, do you put your trust into Mike Brown? Do you put your faith into Mike Brown when you know that the Bengals and being in the, the AFC, the, uh, being in that division, division and being in that conference and you're dealing with stalwarts in the AFC North like the Baltimore Ravens and with the Pittsburgh Steelers, when you're thinking about in the next five, six, eight, 10, 12, 15 years, every single season you're going to be having, if you want to get to the Super Bowl, if you're going to want to win that conference championship, that you're going to have to go up against a 
Lamar Jackson. You're going to have to go up against a Patrick Mahomes. You're going to have to go up against a Justin Herbert. You're going to have to probably, possibly go up against a talented Trevor Lawrence. You're going to have to be going up against these quarterbacks and these teams. Man, the Bengals had their opportunity and they let it slip out of their hands. So that's, that's rough, man. That's life and life is not always fair. So I hear Van Pelt and these guys talking about it should be a successful season and Bengal fans should be happy. It was your opportunity and putting your faith and trust long-term into Mike Brown and what he's doing. You can put it into Joe Burrow. You can put it into Jamar Chase. You can put it into Zach Taylor. You can put it into Joe Mixon. You can put it into T Higgins, but man, moving forward, what are your thoughts and feelings about the Cincinnati Bengals? I know right now euphoria is setting in in terms of, hey, we've arrived, but weren't we saying that last season about the Cleveland Browns? Yes, Cleveland didn't make it to the AFC Championship or to the Super Bowl, but um, when you're speaking about downtrodden franchises, sometimes you get one chance in a generation to make it happen, no matter how great the outlook seems to be. And I'm not saying this is the forecast for the Cincinnati Bengals. I'm not saying that this is going to be a situation where they had their one shot and they're going to go back to being mediocre to average to a laughing stock again. They're not going to be the Bungles anytime soon with Joe Burrow as their quarterback. But man, just ask Dan Marino and the Miami Dolphins about having that opportunity, having that one opportunity to get that chance to get it done. And when you don't get it done, ask Kurt Warner and Larry Fitzgerald of the Arizona Cardinals. When you get that one opportunity, when you get that one chance, you've got to make it happen. You've got to make it happen. And you're speaking about the situation where the Rams got it done. To the victors go the spoils. So when you're speaking about what the Los Angeles Rams did, special dedication to all the true Los Angeles fans, Los Angeles Rams fans, special dedication going out to Armando Vasquez, special dedication going out to all those guys. You deserved it, man. This was a situation where you can exhale now. It's jubilation and it's almost relief. You almost saw relief. Just what I was talking about when the Rams won the conference championship over the 49ers and they exercised those, those immediate demons in terms of the success recently that the 49ers had over the Los Angeles Rams. And then they were presenting their trophy for winning the conference championship. It was almost like, whew. And I made the point on my podcast that, you know what, the job wasn't done. For Cincinnati, yeah, I hate the narrative of they have nothing to lose and they should go in free and giddy because no one expected them to be there. And because of that, they're going to have some type of advantage because all the pressure is going to be on Los Angeles and none of the pressure is going to be on Cincinnati. That's nonsensical bullshit when you're speaking about what was at stakes. The Cincinnati Bengals, a team that has won, let me see, zero championships, zero Super Bowls, a team that has such a horrible reputation to try to start to scrub and erase when you're speaking about this opportunity that they had. So hell yeah, they had pressure on these guys just because they weren't um, predicted to be in the Super Bowl doesn't mean that when they get there it should be like our work is done. No, but the narrative moving forward, if the Cincinnati Bengals would have won the Super Bowl would have been much different and no one's going to be sitting there blaming or souring or having to say that the season for the Bengals was a quote-unquote disappointment, I think, with the Los Angeles Rams. If they would have lost that football game, if they would have lost this football game to the uh, Bengals, this would have been a season which would have been a 
big disappointment. Not a huge disappointment, not a major disappointment, but um, something that needed to be done. With the Bengals, it's almost like, let's continue to improve on what we did this season. If the Rams would have lost this Super Bowl, playing essentially at home to a team that only one year ago won two or three football games, I think there would have been a lot more. Let's not let's not retool. Let's kind of rebuild some of the things that we need to be rebuilding. That's the difference between the Rams losing the Super Bowl and the Cincinnati Bengals losing the Super Bowl. The Rams can now exhale. They were waiting to exhale. Whitney Houston wasn't going to show up. So waiting to exhale, they went ahead and they won the Super Bowl. And uh, I think it was a just just a brilliant mixture of jubilation and relief when Aaron Donald finally caused that incomplete pass, that desperation pass with Joe Burrow, the fall incomplete, and that was the ball game, and the Rams were going to be NFL Super Bowl champions. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The game was just over, man, so I, I can't sit here right now and start picking about and talking about and speaking about how this play caused the Rams to win the Super Bowl or this play call caused the Cincinnati Bengals to lose the Super Bowl. I don't know anything about that, but I do know Matthew Stafford, take a bow. Organizations make championships, you betcha. <laughs> you know, organizations win championships, you betcha. Because with Matthew Stafford, the whole narrative changes. With him going from a dysfunctional franchise, franchises can make you win championships. They can also make you lose opportunities to have decent NFL careers in terms of winning and losing and accomplishments and matching your abilities with the success of a football team. The Detroit, we, we saw that at both ends of the spectrum in two years with Matthew Stafford and really 12 years when you speak about his success rate for a team on a team concept with the Detroit Lions and then and his first opportunity to get on a squad and play for a squad in his 12-year career where they're actually a functional organization with talent around it and a true understanding of what it takes to at least give themselves a real chance of winning a Super Bowl. We saw what Matthew Stafford did. And for all those who were speaking about, and I'm not blaming you guys, but the the conversation point was out there. Well, you know, Matthew Stafford, I mean, this is a guy 12 years in Detroit and he never got the job done and he's never won a playoff game. And, you know, when the NFC, he's going to have to be going up against the revitalized Dallas Cowboys squad. And he's going to have to be going up against the greatest football player, the greatest quarterback that we've ever seen in Tom Brady, the greatest winner in NFL history in Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and that defense coming off of a Super Bowl win. And you're speaking about the San Francisco 49ers having their number in the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers having his second in the MVP season and the success that the Packers have had. How is Matthew Stafford going to do in those situations? If the Rams have to go on the road and they have to play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, if they have to play the Green Bay Packers in January and below freezing weather. How is Matthew Stafford, who's never had any type of success, true success in his 12-year career, how much of how much has he been slathered and laden and covered in Detroit Lions ineptitude for 12 years? How much is that going to play when he goes and he tries to, to uh, chase that uh, Lombardi trophy? This was a guy, man, who is like, I, I, it's, it's, we're in the moment. 
So, of course, we're going to be talking about, oh, yeah, Matthew Stafford now. He's a Hall of Fame quarterback. If you take a look at everything he's done, whew, I don't know about that. But, man, did this guy put on a performance, not just in this game, but also throughout the playoffs if you're speaking about what he did against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, if you think about what he did against the San Francisco 49ers, and then in the Super Bowl today where he lost Odell Beckham Jr. early, the running game was giving him nothing. Tyler Higby, the starting tight end, he was out. The second string tight end, I think, got injured, so he was down to a third tight end. And basically, it was the Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup show on offense for most of the game. And when they needed to get the job done, man, in terms of that last uh, drive, that's exactly what Stafford did. Speaking about for the game, completing 26 of 40 passes, 200 and 83 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. One was just a basic Hail Mary at the end of the first half, which really didn't cause any type of a major impact one way or the other. And then the second interception that he had on the Rams' first possession in the second half, that was not his fault in terms of the interception is concerned. So, man, Stafford, for the most part, played a pretty pretty clean game. And you gotta you got to give him tremendous credit for that. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about the Super Bowl, which is now over. Man, maybe on my YouTube channel, I'll be getting more in-depth about certain plays and certain situations and everything concerning this game. But, you know, just from the way I'm feeling right now, I'm kind of high, I'm kind of giddy. I, I didn't have a dog in this race. I didn't put any money on this. I didn't do any Super Bowl betting or props or, or anything like that. I'm just excited. It was a uh, really good game. And knowing that the NFL football season is going to be on hiatus in terms of playing for a while and for another seven months, you know, I'm still on the, I'm still on the high of this last uh, game of the, of the season for the NFL. So it was, uh, it was spectacular. Cooper cup. Ooh, man, you're speaking about, remember I was, remember doing a podcast and I was thinking about, and I was talking about some of the, some of the non quarterbacks who were, who could be considered for the MVP. And two of the names that I brought up was Derek Henry at the time for the Tennessee Titans before he got injured. And after he got injured, I was speaking about uh, Jonathan Taylor, the running back for the Indianapolis Colts. And when people were speaking about, well, the, the, the non-quarterbacks, if you're not going to have Aaron Rodgers, if you're not going to have Tom Brady, who was the best, most valuable non-quarterback for a football team? And I was bringing up Jonathan Taylor. Um, that was somewhere around week 9 or 10, or 11, 12, somewhere around there. But, man, we completely passed over Cooper Cup. Completely passed over. And I even mitigated some of the impact and some of the responsibilities that he had for the Rams' offense to do what they did and perform like they performed, not just in the Super Bowl, but also some of the big plays that he made even throughout the playoffs. When you're speaking about saving the Los Angeles Rams' bacon by going long on that pass play against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFC Divisional round and catching that pass, which put the Rams in position to kick a field goal to move on. When you're speaking about the clutch touchdown pass that he had against the Rams to put, against the 49ers to put the Rams ahead and allow them to um, win the conference championship. And then, of course, the game-winning touchdown pass, and not only the game-winning touchdown pass with, what, about a minute something left to go in the game, but the fact of how clutch he was down the stretch in terms of the last drive that that the um that the Rams had 
to put them in a position to go ahead and win that football game. It was, uh, my man Cooper Cup can play, man. I mean, he ain't my man, but the Cooper Cup, that, that, that guy is something else. The touchdown drive to win that game for Los Angeles, 15 plays, 79 yards, taking almost five minutes to get it done. And when they needed a big play, whether it was getting a fourth down conversion or, as I mentioned before, a big pass play over 20 yards and scoring the winning touchdown, it was Cooper Cup who got it done and really kind of sealed his MVP for the game with those uh, with those type of plays. You could have easily given a co-MVP award if that was possible to Matthew Stafford and to Cooper Cup. I mean, you can even want to say you could want to cut it three ways. You could make a strong argument that Aaron Donald, you can even cut it four ways. If <laughs> She's speaking about Aaron Donald and Vaughn Miller and to uh, in- include those two guys when you're speaking about possible MVP candidates because uh, it was a situation where, man, the after the Bengals scored on the first play of the second half, to go up, uh, to go up. What, what, when did they go up? They went up after that long touchdown pass um, in the first, at the end of the, uh, <clears throat> at the end of the, the beginning of the um, second half to go up 17, 13, and then, and then uh, Stafford throws that interception. It was a situation where they go up 24, 4, uh, 24, 13. Might be a whole new ball game. It might be an entirely different ball game, but that's where Aaron Donald and Vaughn Miller stepped up to get it done. And it was the consistent pass rush. Seven sacks on Joe Burrow. Seven sacks. And they damn near won the game. If you, People want to be speaking about the long-term success of Cincinnati. And don't worry about it. We'll be perennial contenders. Not if Joe Burrow is going to be getting hit and sacked as much as he did in these playoffs. If you're speaking about Cincinnati giving up nine sacks in the divisional round game against the Tennessee Titans. And then in the Super Bowl, being sacked seven times by the Los Angeles Rams, you ain't winning diddly as far as Super Bowls is concerned if that's going to be kept in, being kept up in those situations. So it was a game. OBJ goes down. It was gritty. It was grimy. It was ugly. It was tough. As I mentioned before, how many of those games has Sean McVay won? You speak about the last time McVay was in the Super Bowl and how ugly that game was against the New England Patriots where they lost a 13-3. McVay showed, hey man, you know what? He could win any type of football game in a game like that with Matthew Stafford. They don't win that football game with Jared Goff. And the moves that were made in terms of getting OBJ, who put the Rams on the board first with a touchdown pass, when you think about the acquisition of Vaughn Miller and the impact that he had, for the uh, Rams to win this championship, when you speak about all of those type of things, how many times have we seen the multitude of acquisitions that the Rams had and they came through with such a flying colors in the most important times? When you're speaking about the trade for Matthew Stafford, when you're speaking about the trade for Jalen Ramsey, even though he was burnt a couple of times, he's a member of a Super Bowl winning championship team. When you're speaking about the moves that were made with the concise responsibility that have them win a Super Bowl and to get it done and to acquire Miller and to acquire OBJ and to acquire Matthew Stafford and then less than a season with those three on board to win themselves a Super Bowl championship, man. I don't know what it said for some of the other teams in the league. I mean, this is not like the NBA where 
you know, player empowerment or player movement is as free as it is in the NFL. And when you're speaking about Harden and all these other guys running around and LeBron going from here to there and the quote unquote big market teams having the ability to attract and to sign and to get the quote unquote big name franchise players. It's not like that in the NFL, but yet and still, I mean, this was a situation with the Los Angeles Rams accumulating this type of talent. That's not happening in too many other places. So this was almost, uh, you know, let's need, take a bow. Sean McVay, take a bow. They got it done. They got it done. You're at Los Angeles Rams in a, in a, in a, in a, Hmm. Should I say thrilling? Without it, was is that the right term to use? Is that the right adjective to use? Thrilling. It was a. It was a good football game. It was a really good football game. It was an entertaining football game. It was a football game which did nothing but enhance the uh, love and affection and the and, and the Americaniness of uh, football in this country. Uh, it did what it's supposed to do. It left it, but what it was much better than last uh, season's. Super Bowl, so this is going to resonate a lot longer in the eyes of the fans and everyone else when they think about this season and the fondness and the enjoyment that they had. If you didn't have a dog in the hunt, if you didn't have a dog in the race, if you didn't have any type of bets or anything like that, if you were just watching this game, the Rams and the Bengals, strictly from a entertainment point of view, it was a fabulous game, good game for the NFL to uh Say bye-bye to the season, too. But uh, 23-20, Aaron Donald, special dedication. Vaughn Miller, special dedication. OBJ getting his first ring, special dedication. Matthew Stafford, long, long journey. 12 long years in NFL purgatory. Speaking about the Detroit Lions finally getting himself a ring. Cooper's Cup establishing himself as one of the premier, not just position players, not just offensive players, but one of the premier players in the NFL coordinating with that performance in the Super Bowl. Special dedication to him and special dedications going out to the Cincinnati Bengals. The turnaround that you had, the way Joe Burrow is changing that culture, if he could continue to improve and continue to be that leader and continue to work that magic and continue to do the things that he needs to do along with Chase and the others. This might not be the last time that we'll say that the Cincinnati Bengals are AFC champions and true contenders for the Super Bowl. But as of right now, as I'm recording this at 8.39 in the evening Pacific Standard Time, your Los Angeles Rams, go crazy LA, go crazy. Your football team are the NFL Super Bowl champions.
Coast World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, I'm recording this, and this is going to be published on Monday, which is going to be February 14th, which is going to be Valentine's Day. So to all the young lovers, the old lovers, those who are just recently gotten together, those who have been together for decades upon decades upon decades and those type of things, happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Make sure that uh, you treat your man, make sure you treat your woman, make sure you treat your partner with such love and respect and dignity and kindness and, and, and make sure, as I'm going to be saying throughout this podcast, that uh, you can go ahead and continue the love and affection and respect that you have for one another. Gain the respect and love that you have for one another if you haven't gotten it yet. And moving on to the next day and to the next day and to the next day. And make sure that tonight you play a little Four Tops featuring my man Levi Stubbs. Make sure you play a little Otis Redding. Make sure you play a little James Ingram. Make sure you play a little OJs, which you just heard. Make sure you play a little Freddie Jackson. Make sure that you play a little something to let her know. Play it with some soul. Play something soulful to let them know. Play a little Aretha. Play a little Anita. Play some Diana Ross. Play some Mary J. Play something to let your loved one know how much you care about them. Please, if you could do that for me, a man still searching, still looking for that uh, person that, uh, you know, is going to be my very own and all that kind of stuff. Make sure you do it for me. Do it for me. And as I mentioned before, if you can't do it tonight, make sure you do it tomorrow. If you can do it tonight, do it tomorrow, and then the next day, next day, next day. Don't need roses, don't need flowers, don't need champagne, don't need anything like that, but love and happiness and those type of things like my man Al Green, show them that type of stuff, and it'll make me extremely happy as my journey continues to find the ever-loving partner that I've been searching for, oh, for about, I don't know, about 15 minutes. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us speaking about the afterglow of Super Bowl 56. The Los Angeles Rams are your Super Bowl champions, 23-20 over the Cincinnati Bengals. I thought, man, when Los Angeles scored that touchdown, when Cooper Cup scored that touchdown to make it 23-20 with about a minute, something left to go. The Bengals at the time, I believe, had two timeouts or something like that. I was like, man, I texted my, uh, my closer than brother, Mikel Davis. I said, man... We're going into overtime, 23-all. I thought Burrow was going to get it done. I thought Burrow, especially after that first pass to uh, Jamar Chase in the final drive uh, for uh, Cincinnati in that game where they got somewhere close to midfield. It was like a situation where, man, number one, this kid, this rookie for the Bengals, this field goal kicker, he's got ice water in his veins. He ain't going to miss if you get it anywhere Inside 56, 55 yards, he's going to put it through the uprights to go into overtime. And you've got Burrow, you've got um, Jamar Chase and such. So I thought they were definitely going to get into field goal range. And everybody's going to sit there and talk about the third down call, the handoff to uh, P. Ryan, which uh, brought up the fourth down. And why are you going to do that? And again, it's easy to criticize when the play didn't work, but... I didn't understand it, but I'm not the coach, and I'm not going to sit there and start, uh, you know, second-guessing, uh, uh, you know, Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking, something like this. Um, game plan, whatever, he found something that he thought might work, didn't work, you move on to the next drive. I mean, what would have been the case 
if on third down and one that Burrow went back to pass and the thing that happened to Burrow on fourth down happened to him on third down in terms of he got sacked and now instead of fourth and one or fourth and manageable or just just picking up one yard through the run because you had Joe Mixon and you had a running game for the uh, Bengals who, you know, throughout the, throughout the game, they were they were running the ball pretty efficiently. It wasn't like they were struggling like the um, like the uh, Rams were for the running game. When you when you're speaking about you know, the the um, Bengals rushing for four yards per carry on only 20 carries, but you know this wasn't a situation where look the Rams ran for 43 yards on 23 carries. They were struggling mightily. It wasn't that way for the Bengals. So Taylor went ahead, did the running play on third down, didn't make it. So again, it's easy to sit there and call him a bum or I can't believe this. And I'm quite sure on the uh, talk shows that they're going to be discussing that play. But hey, look, again, if it was third down, Burrow goes back to pass, Donald Miller, somebody sacks him for a four or five yard loss instead of fourth and manageable or fourth and one or half a yard or the fourth and one that was given or the fourth and one that the Bengals tried to uh, convert instead of his fourth and six, fourth and seven, and then they get sacked again because on fourth down, everybody knows that it's going to have to be a pass play, and then the uh, Rams' front four really goes to town. Then everybody's going to be sitting there talking about, well, how the hell did you try to pass the ball on third and one? You should have ran the ball. You should have gave the ball to Mixon, and he Mixon, and he could have got the first down and that type of thing. So there's narratives in terms of blaming for every scenario if it doesn't work he went for it on third and one he didn't get it zach taylor is not a bum zach taylor is not an idiot zach taylor didn't call didn't make the worst call in super bowl history or any other type of uh stuff that's going to be spoused out of people's mouths and, and anuses tomorrow on the talking head shows it's just what it was what it was give the ramps credit for making the play to bring up the fourth down and then so, so the um the sack or the pressure by Aaron Darnold for Joe Burrow to throw that incomplete pass, allowing the Los Angeles Rams to win their first Super Bowl. I'm quite sure somewhere, some way, Jack Youngblood and Vince Ferragamo are, uh, are dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie somewhere. Yes, Jack Youngblood, even with his broken leg, is somewhere dancing on the streets in, I don't know where he's living right now. Wendell's World, is he still, even still living? I don't know. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So that kind of leads us into the offseason, right? I mean, I don't know, as of right now, look, the game was just over, so I don't know how much more I can uh, take. The, 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 the game still hasn't been completely baked for me to uh, start picking the meat off the bones and um, really getting into digesting about what really happened with the game itself. So, you know, moving on into the offseason, I, I said it before on my other podcast, man, what the Cincinnati Bengals have done for the NFL because there's going to be an impact for a winner and for a loser, and that impact, both positive and negative, is going to reverberate around the NFL circles and to other franchises. If the Cincinnati Bengals are just making it just making it to the Super Bowl. If I'm the if I'm the New York Jets, if I'm the Detroit Lions, if I'm the Arizona Cardinals, if I'm the Washington Commanders now, I take a look at the Cincinnati Bengals. If I'm a fan base of those teams, those downtrodden teams, if I if I'm a lifelong fan or a passionate fan of the Cleveland Browns, I mean, I, I take a look at what the Cincinnati Bengals did and say, why can't that be us? 
I mean, again, you take a look at the Cincinnati Bengals record. You take a look at their years of futility outside of what Marvin Lewis did. You take a look at what the Cincinnati Bengals were before Marvin Lewis got there and elevated their uh, stature and elevated their gameplay. And then after he left, you saw that the Bengals went down to being the Bengals for a few years. You take a look at what the Bengals did this season, going from three wins or something like that to being one drive away from winning the Super Bowl with Mike Brown as the owner of that team. And we can clown Willie, Woody Johnson all we want to, and we can clown Jimmy Haslam all we want to, and we can clown the Fords all we want to, and we can clown the Maras and the Tishes all we want to, and we can clown the McCaskies all we want to, and we can clown Daniel Snyder all I want to. But, 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 but man, right in the most incompetent and inept owners as far as, as far as reputation is concerned for the longest amount of time was Mike Brown. Skinflint Mike Brown. Cheapskate Mike Brown. Mike Brown, who everybody was talking about, um, you know, Zach Taylor, you know, man, I can't believe he was given another year. I can. Mike Brown ain't going to fire any, any, any coach, no matter how bad he is after a couple of years. How many times did we hear that Marvin Lewis needed to be fired after his inability to get Cincinnati past one playoff game? And the only reason why he was kept around was because Mike Brown was too cheap to let him go because he didn't want to pay the buyout or he didn't want to pay a coach who wasn't coaching for him anymore. We heard all them stories. Some of it was true. Some of it was justified. But we, we, we saw a we saw an owner or we saw a team that was owned by Mike Brown who for the longest amount of time was derelict in his duty to put together even a decent scouting department. You know, Marvin Lewis and some of his offensive coaches and defensive coaches had to go around and do the scouting of college players and such like that because... Mike Brown didn't invest in the scaling department well enough to compete with the teams that were winning championships and teams that were consistently that were consistently winning and being successful. So you throw all this into the mix and you see exactly what happened. Hey, you know, you went ahead and you got Joe Burrow, the quarterback, puts everything into place in terms of your chances of being of of, of being good and having hope. I mean, fans in Jacksonville are sitting there watching the Bengals and saying, why not us? I mean, we have a guy who supposedly is supposed to be is supposed to have more talent and potential to be a franchise quarterback than Joe Burrow and what we have in Trevor Lawrence. Why can't we do what Cincinnati did with Joe Burrow? We have someone who's more talented. And we have more cap room. And we live in a place what's going to be probably a better free agent destination. We live in a state that has no state income tax. We have advantages that Cincinnati has. Oh, no, did I mention before? We have a talent that many people are prognosticating to say that he, they're going to, he's going to be a generational great quarterback. Why can't we go ahead and do what the Cincinnati Bengals did this season? Now, I'm not saying that people should be whining and crying with Jacksonville in the state of flux that they're in. Maybe Doug Peterson can do some things. So I'm not expecting Jacksonville to have the turnaround that Cincinnati did from last uh, year to this year with the Bengals. But why not Jacksonville if you're a fan of those guys? Why can't we go ahead and make some free agent uh, acquisitions? We got a competent head coach in there. We got a quarterback in Trevor Lawrence, who's supposed to be the end-all, the be-all. We have some competent pieces around this around this group. I mean, why not us? Maybe not Super Bowl contenders, but damn sure in the sorry AFC South, why can't we be competing with the Indianapolis Colts and with the Tennessee Titans?
I mean, hell, we can't beat Ryan Tannehill. We did it before, right? So why can't we do it on a more consistent basis? Those are some of the things that, um, those are some of the things that the Cincinnati Bengals presented to the rest of the league. I mean, the New York Jets have Zach Wilson, a potential franchise quarterback. I mean, we have Taylor Haneke, never mind. But, you know, we, we, we see that out there. And if you're a team like the Dallas Cowboys and you're Jerry Jones, isn't that a blow to your ego to see what the Cincinnati Bengals have done? The fact that, yeah, you know, Dallas has some rich and some pretty good um, players at their disposal. They have a young defense. You have Micah Parsons. You have some talented players on offense and such. But, I mean, the Cincinnati Bengals with Mike Brown, if you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, it's like, how in the world did the Cincinnati Bengals get to where they were before the where they are now? And we're still kind of treading water in terms of our overall, overall success is concerned. Now, all of a sudden, with the $40 million man, Dak Prescott is up there saying, well, wait a minute, we're paying Dak Prescott $40 million or something like that. And Joe Burrow, the second year guy from LSU who missed the majority of uh, his rookie season because of a broken leg, all of a sudden now he's gone farther in his playoff career than Dak Prescott. What are we paying that guy $40 million for? What are we talking about Dak Prescott being the end-all, the be-all? Why are we up there mentioning Dak Prescott as the quarterback who can lead us to the promised land? He can't even get as far as Joe Burrow. And we're up here speaking about a team in Dallas that can't get as far as the Cincinnati Bungles with Mike Brown as their owner. Last time I checked, Mike Brown wasn't in the Hall of Fame. Jerry Jones was. Outside of uh, Jimmy Johnson carrying his ass to uh, two Super Bowls or three Super Bowls with Barry Switzer, how many opportunities, how many championships, how many Super Bowls, how many Super Bowl appearances, how many conference championship appearances has Dallas had? Hmm? Huh? And you're going to let the Cincinnati Bengals do those things? Maybe it's a situation now where you take a look at some of these franchises, maybe the success of the Cincinnati Bengals had lit a fire into some of their asses to say, you know what, fellas, mandate, if I'm an owner of a football team, I'm saying mandate, if Mike Brown and the Cincinnati Bengals can get to the Super Bowl and have the turnaround that uh, they had this season, why can't us? I'm I'm a Washington football fan right now. Why can't us? I'm a Washington Commanders fan right now. Why can't us? Oh, that's right, because of our owner. Ah, geez, I forgot. Damn. Oh, well, but uh, yeah, it's just that's that's the situation, man. That's the situation moving forward. It resonates in terms of the impact that these games have, especially when you're reaching the playoffs. Look, the Rams did it, made great acquisitions, but there's more than one way to win a championship. And the Cincinnati Bengals showed you one way where you can get in position to win a championship. The Los Angeles Rams showed you another way to uh, do that, to get themselves in the championship. One did that mainly through free agency in the draft. Another one did that without too many draft picks, even though their most important player, their best player, the MVP of the game, Cooper Cup, was a draft pick. You can sit there and talk about the Rams' bust as first-round draft picks are concerned. The most important draft pick that they had in terms of who they drafted turns out to be the guy who wasn't a first-round pick, who wasn't a top-5 or 10 or 15-round, 15-player pick. And you see what Cooper Cup is doing for the Los Angeles Rams. So I just love to see the immediate impact and even the long-term off-season impact of what a team like the Cincinnati Bengals. If Cincinnati would have won three or four games this season and would have been the same old Bengals and the Kansas City football team would have ran roughshod through the NFL and they would have played the Rams in the Super Bowl. 
the offseason, I feel, in the NFL would not have been as interesting. But because of what Cincinnati did, you're going to start hearing fan bases. Hopefully, you'll start hearing coaches and owners of these other teams to say, man, let me tell you something. And they're not going to say this out loud, of course. But they're going to say, man, if the Cincinnati Bengals can go ahead and get this done, why can't us? Why can't us? Detroit, why can't us? Dan Campbell, why can't us? Woody Johnson, why can't us? The Ford family, why can't us? The Cleveland Browns and Baker Mayfield, why can't us? Jacksonville and the Khan family, why can't us? Trevor Lawrence, why can't us? Daniel Snyder, why can't... Okay, today is my own question. I just, just named the reason why we can't. But yeah, the Cincinnati Bengals, man, the impact that they're going to make this season short long-term on the NFL and some of these franchises, if you're one of us, the downtrodden, they give us hope. They give us hope. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Recording this on a Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I hope that you're treating your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your significant other uh, with love, peace, unity. And make sure, even though this is February 14th and some might make this a special day to show the love and admiration and affection that they have for one another make sure that you carry this over from february 14th to the 15th and all the way till next year showing how much you care as james ingram said my man james ingram said lover today find 100 ways and then tomorrow find 150 and then after that find 200 and we keep going and we keep going for those who don't have anybody like myself do it for me do it for me and realize how lucky each and each and Every one of you guys are to have someone special in your life. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, here we go. Let's go ahead and get to the NBA trade deadline, right? Happened on Thursday, the trade that everybody thought was going to happen, the trade in terms of when the deadline comes, the juicy trade, the tasty trade, the delicious trade in terms of piquing our interest was uh, the Brooklyn Nets, the Philadelphia 76ers, Ben Simmons, James Harden, where there's smoke, there's fire. Daryl Morey got what he wanted. Brooklyn, we still have a pulse in terms of being contenders and short-term, long-term, very good deal for the Brooklyn Nets. Daryl Morey got what he wanted, right? Everybody was speaking about you got to trade for Buddy Heald. You got to go ahead and see what you can do with uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves. You can Go ahead, you need to wait, you can't bring... And I think a lot of the speculation in terms of you got to do something now, you got to do something now, was the 
thought process that, man, this might be a situation where if the 76ers don't get something done with Ben Simmons and the speculation might be that, man, if he, we don't get something done before the trade deadline and then after the trade deadline, there's going to be no, there's going to be no, you know, resolution in sight in terms of when this deal is going to get done and the way Joel Embiid is playing. Man, this is a situation where you got to take care of this and get this done and maximize the opportunity for Joel Embiid to win a championship. Now, if Joel Embiid was hurt, if the Philadelphia 76ers were somewhere near the bottom, if the Philadelphia 76ers weren't competing, it might be a little bit easier for Daryl Morey to have Ben Simmons sit on the sidelines because the 76ers weren't going anywhere. But man, when you got Joel Embiid playing at this level, and you've got the Philadelphia 76ers right now in the Eastern Conference where it is wide open in terms of the caliber of teams that could uh, win the uh, conference championship, the Eastern Conference championship. Now is a situation where you have to get something done. And the angst amongst Philadelphia 76ers fans was, is Moray going to be waiting for a Damian Lillard or a Bradley Beal to finally go to their organizations and say, hey, look, you know, I'm done. I don't want to be here anymore. And go ahead and trade me to the Philadelphia 76ers. And the 76ers have this chip in Ben Simmons that they could go ahead and trade for. And if that doesn't happen, what exactly is this going to take place? What exactly is everything going to, you know, take take place? And with the Sixers, as I mentioned before, with the season that they're having, man, you're going to waste a year of Joel Embiid, who I'm sorry, I mean, there is no guarantee that Embiid is going to play at this level for the next four or five years, even though he's just turning 28 years old next month. There's no guarantee as we take a look at the injury history of Joel Embiid that he's going to be giving this type of performance or this type of domination or play at this level for a consistent amount of time during the season. If you take a look at his injury history. So we've got to strike when the iron is hot. And right now, this might be a situation where this might be a Phoenix Suns, Charles Barkley, 1991-92 situation where Barkley played at the highest level that he was ever going to play at. Phoenix had that magical season where they lost in six games to the Chicago Bulls. Well, this might be a situation where, man, with the Philadelphia 76ers, Embiid is playing the role of Charles Barkley, 1991-92, where Barkley won his only MVP award, that this might be the best that we might ever get from Joel Embiid. So we're going to have to go ahead and maximize this. So, Daryl, you got to make a trade, man. you got to do something to improve the chances. So I think that's where the angst and the uncomfortability and, you know, the where, where everybody is getting a little bit nervous. Because if you're waiting around for Damian Lillard, who cares if we get him in the offseason if you're a 76ers fan? Who cares if you get him in the offseason? We just missed an opportunity to capitalize on a great season by Joel Embiid and, we, and win a championship. You're waiting for Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal, who is out for the remainder of the season because he had a wrist injury or because of a wrist injury. But before that, you're waiting for Bradley Beal to go to the Wizards organization and finally say, look, I want to go ahead and get out of here when he's given no indication so far that he has except for a faint comment of I want to win I want to win so you're wasting this opportunity Daryl you got to do something now Daryl you have to be desperate now Daryl you have to do something anything call up Sacramento call up Minnesota call up somebody and get something done Moray was patient Moray was like I'm not trading this guy for nothing I'm not trading him for 55 cents on the dollar I'm not trading him for 65 cents on the dollar so he was waiting for Lillard. He was waiting for Beal. So the narrative that James Harden 
was his white whale and that's who he was looking for and that's who he was waiting for all this time is it's, it's a falsehood now when grumbling started and we don't know exactly when Harden was starting to give out smoke signals in terms of I'm interested in getting out of here but when that came available and we saw that Lillard is going to be out and it's going to be out for a significant amount of time with an abdominal injury Bradley Beal missing the regular season, missing the rest of the uh, regular season because of injury. Now you have the situation with James Harden now popping up, and this was a time for both the Philadelphia 76ers and the Brooklyn Nets to strike, and which they did on Thursday. So Philadelphia received not just James Harden, but Paul Millsap, all shucks, buyout, buyout candidate. And the Nets received Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and... In the next segment, man, I'm going to tell you, Ben Simmons as being the center point, as being the focal point, as being the star of this deal, absolutely. But, man, do not sleep in terms of the short-term, especially the short-term success on the Brooklyn Nets. Don't sell short the acquisition of Seth Curry and Andre Drummond. But the Nets received Simmons, Curry, Drummond, a 2022 first-round pick, unprotected with uh, right to defer until 2023. They have a 2027 first round pack, which is a top eight protection through 2028, then becomes two seconds if it's not conveyed. So somehow, some way, the Nets had to go ahead and try to recoup some of the draft picks that they give. They gave Houston when they initially went ahead and acquired James Harden. So it was a good deal for both I've mentioned before, the 76ers because they got their man in James Harden and the Brooklyn Nets because they got a guy who can really help them out in terms of the fit of the team with Ben Simmons, a couple of other ancillary pieces that are going to help and getting some first round picks in the um, not only upcoming draft, but also a little bit down the road. So it was a good move on the beginning, at the beginning, of course, with any move, no matter, because we were all talking about how wonderful and how awesome and how fabulous and how great it was about a season and a half ago when the Brooklyn Nets went ahead and uh, acquired James Harden, and that put them in terms of the trio with Kevin Durant and James Harden and Kyrie Irving. Okay, here we go. Where are they going to be stacking up when everything is all said and done with the great trios of NBA history? When you're speaking about Wilt and Jerry and, and Elgin, when you're speaking about Paul Pierce and KG and Ray Allen, when you're speaking about LeBron, Chris Bosh, and, and uh, D. Wade, when you're speaking about all these fabulous, fabulous trios, the <laughs> the Akeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, Scully Pippen, uh, Rendezvous down in Houston, when all the trios going on in the world, now we can go ahead or in NBA history, we can go ahead and start talking about we where are these guys going to lie? What uh, what impact are they going to have? All of these type of things. Well, 16 games. 16 games in a season and a half. 16 games. That's about it. Now in those 16 games, the trio, Durant, Harden, and Kyrie went 13-3, 8-2 in the regular season. Five and one in the playoffs. Well, man, that that was it. I mean, so the final verdict on this James Harden, KD, Kyrie, you know, Brooklyn dominated era in Brooklyn is incomplete. I would say a disappointment, unfulfilled, anything that you want to say in that regard. It was just possibly one of the greatest trios in NBA history that never really got a chance to work. It never really got a chance to work. There were a lot of reasons there was a lot of situations both that were avoidable and unavoidable the Kevin Durant situation where he played only 35 games last season because the season before he missed the entire year 
because of Achilles tear, and then he came back, played 35 games, and Kyrie Irving, he was injured also, so he only played 54 games in the regular season and got injured, twisted his ankle in the playoffs, and then James Harden coming over, and he had to erase that stench, which he had in terms of him getting to the opportunity, getting him the giving him the opportunity to get to the Brooklyn Nets with some of his antics and some of his unprofessionalism in Houston. So he spent about half the season trying to uh, cleanse his soul of that situation. It was playing MVP type basketball, but it was just one thing led to another, whether it was game management by the Nets organizations with uh, KD and Kyrie, which sometimes led James Harden out there on an island by himself. Uh, what is the situation where, you know, coming into this season, the whole Kyrie Vax, vaccinated situation and then Kevin Durant getting injured again. I mean, who knows? It was a bunch of situations. I, I always thought that, man, when you had those three, and you're speaking about when the trade was made, Durant being still a top three player at worst, even though he was coming off a season-ending injury the uh, year before. Harden then was a top 10, anywhere between a top six to top 10 player in the league on a consistent basis. Irie, uh, Kyrie was a top 15 type player. All three were still relatively healthy at the beginning, the last, you know, the last stage, stages of their athletic prime years when you speak about KD, when you speak about Harden, and you're speaking about three guys who, if you're speaking about near the end of their athletic prime, especially KD, who had a, who was 32, what's he, 31, 32 years old when he had that Achilles tear, and James Harden and Kyrie Irving all north of 27, 28 years old, their games really didn't rely on uber athleticism. KD wasn't great because he was a genetic athletic freak. James Harden's accomplishments were not because of his unbelievable athletic ability. Same with Kyrie Irving. These guys were very skilled and still are very skilled basketball players, which meant as they got older, they would more go towards the more gold goes toward what Steph Curry is doing right now in terms of his importance and not what Russell what uh, Russell Westbrook has become. So, look, it was a trio that you gave three to four years. Let's see what we can do, win a couple of championships, this, that, and the other. And look, they finished the season, their first season together, 48-24, and 24, win game behind this Philadelphia 76ers. KD coming off an injury the previous season, played 35 games, as I mentioned before. Averaged 27 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists per game, establishing himself once again as one of the top, if not the top player in the NBA. Kyrie played 54 games, averaged 27 points, 5 rebounds, 6 assists. The, the, the big wow in this whole situation was James Harden. Harden was the one that came over from Houston and had the biggest questions of them all going into the season, how he would fit, both need the ball and all this kind of stuff. He was the one that said, you know what, I'm going to acquiesce and I'm going to be the one that's going to play point guard. I'm going to be the one that's going to try to fit in. I'm going to be the one that's going to try to blend. The organization talked about how wonderful and how professional he was with the young guys holding everybody accountable. James Harden was the leader of that basketball team last year. You never would have thunk the way James Harden was playing at one time where he, once again, if the whole Houston situation didn't happen, that he would be a real candidate for the MVP of the league. You never would have thought that just eight, nine months later that he would be sitting here in Houston talking about, you know, trade me from the Brooklyn Nets. I don't want to be with the Brooklyn Nets. In fact, I'm injured. I'm not going to even stay with the Brooklyn Nets. I'm going back home to Houston. That kind of gives you, when you want to know the 
You want to know my answer to do I want to stay with the Brooklyn Nets? Oh, here's my answer. I'm leaving the team and going back to Houston. Y'all get it done for me. See ya. I'll let you know my intentions on Zoom. I'm not going to even be man enough to walk into the room and tell you guys to tell Josiah and tell Sean Marks and tell uh, Steve Nash that I'm out of here, that I want to go to Philadelphia. I'll just kind of let, you know, I'm injured. I'm flying back home to Houston and... When you guys talk to me again, it'll be through Zoom, and that's when I'll let you know that uh, I'm going to be out of here. So none of these antics, none of this situation that is happening now could have been foretold when James Harden was playing at an MVP-type level. So it's, it's amazing. Who knows, man? Who knows in the world today of the NBA? Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the trade is done. The deal is done. We can go it back and... I want to go back again. I, I, the reason why I'm just sticking with this because it's just, it's just, damn, man, I wanted to see this work. I wanted to see this trio work. I wanted to see this perimeter trio work. Most of the time when you're speaking about great trios or when you're speaking about great, you know, Batman, Robin, and Alfred type of uh, situations and combos in the NBA, a lot of time it involves a big man. It's almost a situation where if you go ahead and you take a look at the annals in the, in the NBA history, a lot of times, the big man is involved. Whether you're speaking about Tim Duncan with Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili, whether you're speaking about, as I mentioned before, Hakeem Olajuwon in the later stages where Barkley and um, Scottie Pippen were running around chasing championships. The idea of the Lakers getting Wilt Chamberlain before the 1968-1969 season to pair up with Elgin Baylor and Jerry West, and everybody thought that that was going to be the godsend for Elgin and Jerry getting their first NBA championship so when you take a look at all of these KG being the big man with Paul Pierce and Ray Allen the only admiration and the only difference or the only uh difference in terms of you know having that big man be in that centerpiece in terms of the trio in terms of dominance is concerned was the Miami Heat with LeBron D. Wade and Chris Bosh, who was a pseudo big man. Here was a guy not being able to play the small forward position, but not really a center also. He was a quote-unquote small ball center, but still was more of a perimeter-oriented type of player, especially later on when he was uh, when he came over from Toronto to uh, play with Wade and LeBron in Miami. So the KD, Kyrie, James Harden duo was going to be something a little bit different. This was something where it was almost like a point guard a shooting guard and a small forward being the centerpieces of the team. And I was just interested to see how, how was this, how was this going to work? How great was this going to be? Three guys who on any given night could put up 40. How was this going to work? Three offensive, brilliant geniuses. How was this going to work? And I tell you, when these guys were rolling, man, these guys were doing some amazing things, but as I mentioned before, never really consistently had the opportunity to uh, to get things going. How much did the Kyrie situation play a role? How much did the Kevin Durant situation play a role? His injury play a role in James Harden finally saying, look, man, I didn't sign up to be what I was in Houston, where you're asking me to have the ball all the time. My usage rate is off the charts. I'm responsible for setting up multitude of players to be successful through pick and rolls and rim running the basket and setting them up for easy three-point shots and that type of thing. The, the, I'm not that James Harden anymore. I'm still great. 
I'm still a you know a top player in the league, but I'm also 32 years old and haven't taken care of my body the way it should be. So my responsibility that you're giving me when I was in my physical prime at Houston, I can't do that now in Brooklyn. One of the reasons why I came to Brooklyn, one of the reasons why I wanted to leave Houston was because of the usage that you guys were going to put on me. I didn't want that. Playing with Kyrie, playing with KD, that was going to be something where it was going to be much, much better for me. Now I see that Kyrie is only a part-time player, and I see that uh, KD is going to be out for a little bit. I, I didn't sign up for this. Joe Harris is not playing. I, I didn't sign up for I didn't sign up to play for with, with James Johnson and Jerry Bembry and Nicholas Claxton and, and all these other guys. I didn't do that. Wasn't it? Bruce Brown. I, I, if I wanted to do that, I would have stayed in Houston. So, nah, man, this this ain't happening. And then there were some other ancillary things, like he didn't like living in Brooklyn and I don't know, all this other stuff. But I, I, I'm i going to guess that uh, he wanted to play for Daryl Morey. He liked the situation where when he was in Houston that he ran, that the organization ran on James Harden's time. And, you know, uh, fondness, you know, being away makes fondness of the heart grow stronger. So there we go. So the situation with that went down. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So just concentrating this segment on the 76ers and basically what's what's going to be happening. So I mentioned before about Daryl Morey being patient. Daryl Morey waiting for his white whale to finally emerge so he can go ahead and nab it, so he can go ahead and grab it. He thought that whale would have been Damian Lillard. He thought that whale possibly was Bradley Beal, but it turned out to be James Harden. Hey, you know what? Fantastic, wonderful. According to uh, Sharm Sharania of The Athletic, as part of the deal, Harden is going to opt into his his $47.3 million player option on the contract for next season. Because of that, he'll be able to sign a new five-year contract worth just under $275 million. Not bad. Not bad, man. So let's take a look at this, man. Let's take a look because, you know, right now, and look, glass half full, glass half empty. I've I've always, I've always had this look. We we worry about, especially if you're someone like the Houston Rockets, or excuse me, someone like the Daryl Morey. Hey, man, we worry, we worry about James Harden making somewhere over $55 million when he's 37 years old, the way that he's taking care of himself. We'll worry, we'll worry about that when the time comes, man. Who knows? I might not be living. Who knows? I might be fired by then. Who knows? I might want to retire. Who knows? I might uh, move on to another organization, man. Who, who knows what the year 2028, 2027 holds for me, holds for James Harden, holds for the Philadelphia 76ers organization, holds for Elton Brand, holds for Doc Rivers. Who knows? man let's let's kind of concentrate on what we can do today what we can do here in the present to make sure we have the best opportunity to win and as i mentioned before hey man with joel Embiid, we don't know we don't know if 32 year old 33 year old 34 year old 35 year old joel Embiid is still going to be that player of impact of uh importance that he is right now we don't know We don't know if if he's going to continue. We don't know if he's going to get any better. We don't even know if he's going to get any worse. We don't know. We don't know what the future holds. So let's get it done today. And we'll worry about a 36, 37, out of shape, slowed down shell of his former self, James Harden making 50-something million dollars when we get there. Because if I'm Daryl Morey, you also have to remember, yeah, y'all were saying the same thing about Chris Paul, about I'm giving Chris Paul that extraordinary amount of, uh, 
of, of, of a deal, of a contract, and my, my goodness, what is Chris Paul going to be doing? How much is Chris Paul going to be worth? How much is Chris Paul going to be hurting the team when he's 34, 35, 36 years old with two or three years left on a deal that's paying him $45, $46 million? And what is it going to mean for Houston and this, that, and the other? Well, you know what? Daryl Morey was able to parlay that contract with Chris Paul to get Russell Westbrook. And then there was the same situation with Russell Westbrook in terms of, oh my goodness, this is horrible and this is terrible. And Russell Westbrook, you know, when his athleticism, you know, get, goes on empty, what's he going to bring to the Houston Rockets organization because he's not going to be the same player. And with that salary cap and with the amount of money that he's going to be making, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be horrible. Moray was like, don't worry about it. I got a plan. They shipped him to the Washington Wizards for John Wall. Same now. With uh, John Wall sitting on the uh, Houston Rockets bench, Daryl Morey says, who cares? I'm with the Philadelphia 76ers now, so that's your problem, not mine. So I can understand in the immediate, Daryl Morey isn't thinking about what's happening for the 2025 season when we don't know exactly what type of player James Harden or Joel Embiid is going to be. We don't know what's going to be the commitments of the Tobias Harris. We don't know what type of player Tyrese Maxey is going to be. Hopefully, by that time, Tyrese Maxey will be an all-star. Many people are prognosticating that being a, an important player on a championship team. So all of these things fall into the fall into the thinking of let's just see what we can do to win a championship now. So the trade acquisition of James Harden is for the now, is for next season, and possibly for the 2023-24 season. After that, man, who knows what's going to be happening, right? But I think for this trade to really work, Philadelphia's going to have to win possibly two championships. Or at least make it to the NBA Finals two out of the three years. They've got to. Now, I understand that Miami's really good. I understand that the Milwaukee Bucks might still have the best player in the league in Giannis and be the defending NBA champions. I understand all of these situations. I understand the Phoenix, and I understand the Golden States, and I understand... Uh, those teams, I understand the comeuppance of the Memphis Grizzlies for somewhere down the road. I, I understand all of those things. So does Daryl Morey. So does Elton Brand. So does Joel Embiid. So does James Harden. Doesn't matter. You got to get it done. You have to. This move right here puts the enormous amount of pressure on so many people in that Philadelphia 76ers organization. Not just James Harden and Joel Embiid, but we're also speaking about Doc Rivers. There are some things that Doc needs to do in terms of getting his team to a championship, getting his team to win a championship, getting his team into a championship series. That's going to do a lot to, man, what's the word I'm looking for here? I'm not saying, his, his reputation isn't damaged, but his reputation, reputation did take a hit in the years that he was with the Los Angeles Clippers. In terms of, look, man, you had Lob City, you over, underachieved with that squad. You had Kawhi and Paul George, you got fired from that job after underachieving in the bubble, losing to the uh, Denver Nuggets. Now you go into the Philadelphia 76ers. You lost in the Eastern Conference, not finals, but semifinals, in a season that was wide open in the Eastern Conference for you to get to the NBA Finals. You lost in seven games at home, losing multiple times at home in that playoff series to the Atlanta Hawks. Everybody wants to focus on Ben Simmons passing up a layup, passing up a dunk in a crucial situation during that time in Game 7. Yeah, we should go ahead and focus on that, but also let's remember that Philadelphia also blew multiple leads multiple times at home in that series before all of the Ben, ben Simmons kerfuffle with the pass and the not the dunk and all those type of things. That all 
there was a lot of things going on before that in terms of, man, what's happening with the Philadelphia 76ers? What's happening with a Glenn Doc Rivers coach team that we've seen several times ever since he led the Boston Celtics to an NBA championship? So there's there's some there's some ghosts that need to be exercised on Doc Rivers' part in terms of now with the acquisition of James Harden. Daryl Morey, you know, what, what about him? What what about this guy? For all of his wheeling and dealing and all of his magistry and all of his uh, understanding of the salary cap and all of his Billy Bean-type antics in terms of uh, acquiring players and thinking outside the box and doing all those type of things, he might be the Lord with no rings because how many rings does he have? Zero. So this is a situation where Moray um, is under a lot of pressure. There's, there's so many things in terms of, look, they got to win their championship. They got to, at the very, very least, this is almost like, excuse me, this is almost like a Los Angeles Rams of football situation. Just getting, you know, acquiring these players and this, that, and the other, just getting to the Super Bowl for the Rams is not something where, you know, let's go ahead and start doing the funky chicken and the James Brown and the kid and play and start dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie. No, 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 son. You got to go ahead and you got to win Super Bowls. Not a Super Bowl, a Super Bowl. So especially now in the game in which, you know, got to get it done. You have to get it done. It's the same thing with the Philadelphia 76ers. There is no super team. This isn't a situation where you have in your prime LeBron, D. Wade, and Chris Bosh playing in Miami. This is not a situation where you have KD, Steph, Draymond, and... Clay Thompson playing for the Golden State Warriors and, 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 and having that dynasty. This is not one of these years in the NBA. There are no super teams in the NBA unless now you want to constitute the Philadelphia 76ers with Harden and Embiid at a super team. And that's not even the real definition of super team because that's only two superstars, not a franchise player, a superstar player, and an all-star player. So in the NBA, you don't even have that right now. So there should be when you have Joel Embiid playing at the level that he's playing in, James Harden now putting more pressure on himself in terms of, okay, man, you know, you got what you wanted again. You pounded and you cried and you, uh, you know, got your way out of, uh, you were unprofessional in getting your way out of Brooklyn to go to the Philadelphia 76ers. All right, all right. But guess what? You better win a championship because getting to the Eastern Conference Finals, we could have done that with just Joel Embiid and that's it. We, we, you know, we didn't need to go ahead and, and trade Curry and trade our death in uh, Andre Drummond to get you and move forward and that type of thing. So they've got, what, with this group. Let's just go glass half full with this in terms of the health of Embiid. Let's say that Harden motivated by the opportunity to play for Daryl Morey, playing with the best big man or playing with the best player that he's ever had outside of uh, KD and now having real opportunities to win a championship where he doesn't have to do everything by himself, motivates him to get in shape, motivates him to play at 85% James uh, James Harden. And they keep that level up for three years. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and base your thoughts and opinions on that scenario. Okay, Tyrese Maxey continues to improve. Matisse Thibel in defense continues to be at a high level. He turns into more of a Mikael Bridges type of uh, offensive player where, look, you're not going to ask a guy to score 20 points a game, but you're going to ask him to make an open shot when he's there. So, you know, let's go ahead and play that scenario out. Two to three years of this group. 
How many championships do you think they should win? How many championships do you expect them to win? I'm thinking in a three-year period, they've got to reach the NBA Finals at least two times and win at least, at the very least, at the very least, one. The very least, one. Two should be expected. If I'm the owner of that team and I'm making these moves, it's like, all right, but well, let me tell you something. At the end of three or four years, I better see a couple of uh, LOBs on my uh, on my trophy case in my office or else I'm going to be really, really pissed. I mean, really pissed because that's when you start taking a look and you're saying, how much are we going to be paying James Harden now going into this uh, contract, going into this year? How much is he going to be owed? 50-something what? And how many championships have we won with this group? Zero? Well, God darn damn. So, look, currently Philadelphia is in fifth place. I don't know if it makes him better. I don't know if this move makes him better than Miami or Milwaukee or even Chicago. Who knows? Who knows, man? As I mentioned before, they're three games behind Miami. Miami with the number one seed in the Eastern Conference as of right now. They're a game and a half behind Chicago and Cleveland and Milwaukee. They're one game ahead of Toronto and, and a game and a half ahead of Boston. So everything is all scrunched up. Everything is a, a clusterfuck down there. So... Look, the Bucks are the only Eastern Conference contenders that made a significant move at the deadline. They picked up Serge Ibaka in a four-team trade with Sacramento and the Clippers and the Detroit Pistons. So, as I mentioned before, man, glass half full approach for, you know, Philadelphia being a strong championship contender. MB continues to play like this, and his game continues to get better. You got to remember, once again, that Joel Embiid finally dropping the histrionics seems to be finally focused on being the best basketball player that he could possibly be and being a guy that, you know what, finally got tired of losing and finally got tired of coming in, uh, you know, unfulfilled expectations and such. He seems like he's on a mission. Just in his uh, boy, just in his mentality alone and stuff, it seems like Joel Embiid is on a mission. So if he, if, if the light is switched on and... He plays at the level that he's playing at right now for the next three, four, five years. And Harden can get himself back into shape. Again, why is why are we talking about Miami and Milwaukee and others being true contenders if the uh, 76ers, two special players, are going to be playing like this? Because Embiid, what he's averaging, 30 points, 11 rebounds, 50% shooting. Most importantly, he's played in 42 of the team's 52 games as of this recording. 42 of the team's 52. Yes, I've said that. And with the exception of KD, James Harden never played with someone as great or potentially impactful in his career. Same with Joel Embiid. So their legacies are on the line, man. You know, speaking about it on Wendell's World and Sports Podcast, the legacies for Embiid and Harden, they're going to be written over the next few seasons. So where does Harden's already done? And I mentioned this before, and I thought that that was one of the reasons why Harden wanted to go to the Brooklyn Nets because his legacy was on the line. He's done everything in his professional career except win himself a championship. He's won an MVP in 2018. He's a 10-time All-Star. He's a six-time All-NBA first-teamer. He's a he won the six-man NBA six-man of the year in 2012 when he was with the Oklahoma City Thunder. He's a three-time NBA scoring champion. He led the league in assists. He made the NBA 75th anniversary team. He won a gold medal as a member of the 2012 uh, USA basketball team. He's done it all. So there's the only thing left for him to do now is to win himself a championship. There's nothing else for him to do. There's no other individual 
accomplishments for him to chase. Unless he really wants to get frisky and go after the Steels, Defensive Player of the Year, and the rebounding title, which we know that ain't going to be happening. So when you speak about legacy, and look, how much do these guys care about legacy? How much do these care? How much do these guys, when they're pulling in the fat checks that they're pulling in the first and fifteenth of every month, really give a damn about what I or you or anybody else think about their quote unquote legacies? But let's just let's just talk about it though when it comes to um, when it comes to James Harden. Winning himself a championship in Philadelphia. It's not like what some of the haters with KD are going to say in terms of, well, the only reason why you won a championship is because you can't beat him, join him. He couldn't beat the best team in the league, so he joined him and, you know, was one of the uh, guys who was, uh, you know, sailed in for a championship. Being ignorant to the fact that Golden Golden State was elevated greatly with Kevin Durant, who became the best player on that team, even though it was Steph Curry's team. Kevin Durant was not a ride-along. Kevin Durant was not a backseat uh, passenger for those championships, but you can't uh, you can't help the ignorant who are going to feel that way about that. You can't help educate the haters who are going to feel that way. So this is not this type of situation with James Harden in terms of, well, you know, to uh, win a championship, he had to uh, go ahead and, um, you know, get himself out of town, get himself out of t- uh, town and play with uh, Joel Embiid. I mean, this isn't a situation where, oh, yeah, Kobe only won championships because of Shaq and Paul Gasol. This is not one of these things where, you know, LeBron had to run and search and do everything to uh, try to find the best team for him to join so he could win a championship. It's not that with uh, James Harden. The Philadelphia 76ers are going to win a championship. It's going to have to be because James Harden played a major role if you're speaking about Philadelphia winning a championship this season next season and the seasons where they're going to be heavy favorites to uh, win. So winning a championship for James Harden after everything that he's accomplished individually in his NBA career, it's going to elevate him into, mm, let's go ahead and talk about shooting guards. James Harden, I don't know, you classify him as a shooting guard. He's played a bunch of point guards. He's a guard. You know, he's a guard. You really can't classify. But if you're just going to go ahead and do that and say that he's a shooting guard, winning a championship now or winning a championship or two, it's going to put him in, I would say, top five all time in terms of shooting guards are concerned. And if you're speaking about just guards, period, Harden winning himself a championship, two championships, going to move him to the top 15 in terms of the greatest guards who's ever played regardless of point guard or shooting guard because if you speak about the list <clears throat> you speak about the list of the greatest guards who's ever played the game of basketball and you start talking about MJ and Magic and Kobe and Oscar Robertson and Dwayne Wade and Steph and Isaiah Thomas and Jerry West and Walt Clyde Frazier and John Stockton and Steve Nash and Clyde the Glide Drexler, the great underrated Sam Jones, Chris Paul, Allen Iverson from Georgetown University, George the Iceman Gervin, Earl Monroe, Jason Kidd, Reggie Miller, Ray Jesus Shuttlesworth Allen, Gary the Glove Payton, Russell Triple Double Westbrook, Nate the Great Archibald, Tiny Archibald. Man, there's been some awesome, awesome legendary, fantastic guards who have played in the NBA. And just right off the bat, if Harden can win himself a championship this year, that would immediately elevate him over the other legends who've never won a championship. Because when we're speaking about this type of stuff, that's the kind of stuff that you have to do, man. You're speaking about all-time greats, and all of those guards I just mentioned are all-time greats. So how do you parse and parcel who's better or who has 
the better career and all that other type of stuff? Don't somehow, some way, we finally have to get to championships? And there's circumstances, of course, which define why someone didn't win a championship, why someone won four championships, why someone won 10 championships, why someone won only two championships. You have to define that. You have to take a look at that. And that shouldn't be just the end all, the be all, but with everything that James Harden has done in his career, winning himself a championship or everything that James Harden has done in his career individually, winning himself a championship, man, doesn't that automatically put him above Reggie Miller or a Westbrook or a Sam Jones or a George Gervin who's never won a championship, Steve Nath never won a championship, Miller, Iverson never won a championship, Chris Paul so far has never won a championship, John Stockton never won a championship because of the fact that James Harden had that chip on his resume. Isn't right there, shouldn't that qualify him to be a strong candidate to elevate past those guys? Again, you know, scenarios and different situations, you know, we can parse and parcel and argue and all that kind of stuff. But in my mind, I think if you win a championship, I mean, that's huge, especially if you are one of the folks in terms of being the main reason why you won that championship. So I think if James Harden can win a championship or two, it will put him above Ray Allen, put him above Jerry West, put him above... Gary Payton, put him above Clyde Drexler. I forgot to mention uh, Mitch Richmond. Also, Richmond was another all-time great uh, shooting guard or, or guard. I would put him over uh, Richmond also, uh, formerly a run TMC. So I'm thinking as far as like winning a championship for Harden, put him on the second tier of all-time NBA greatest guards, right below the likes of Magic and Jordan and Kobe and Steph and D-Wade and such. You know, it would put him, it, it would elevate, it would elevate him to, you know how we need, we don't need to say, we don't need to say Irvin Magic Johnson. We don't need to say his name. All we need to say is Magic. We don't need to say Kobe Bryant because we might, people might ask, who's Kobe? If we just say Kobe. Same thing with Steph. Same thing with D Wade. Same thing with MJ. And hell, we have an MJ in our culture named Michael Jackson where most people will say, the real MJ is Michael Jordan. So you're speaking about James Harden winning himself a chip or two in the next couple of years. I mean, we can forget saying James Harden. We can just say the beard because it's going to be a situation where you say the beard. We know who that is. Oh, that's James Harden. Just like Steph. We don't need to ask Steph who. We don't need to ask Kobe who. We don't need to ask Magic who. We don't need to ask who's D Wade. What are you talking about? Because they're all-time greats. They're legends. They're champions upon champions. They're in that club in terms of the very few in that VIP section of not just greatest guards of all time, but greatest basketball players of all time. You give James Harden that opportunity and he takes advantage of it, of winning that NBA championship, Beard, call me the Beard. That's what I go by, chumps. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The legacy of Joel Embiid. I mean, this guy, it mentioned before, he's still 27. He's not going to turn 28 until March. Five-time NBA All-Star. Three-time second-team nba All-League. Three-time All-Defensive second-team. Rookie of the, uh, or uh, rookie first-teamer in 2017. What's his uh, trajectory? Now, it's really old. I mean, he's really young so far in his career, so there's no need to sit there and start writing his you know, legacies and everything in pen because there's going to be a lot of uh, crossing out and 
rewrites, I think. But without a championship, he's on the same or around the same level of greatness as a Dwight Howard, a Yao Ming, an artist Gilmore, a Nate Thurman, Bob Lanier, Walt Bellamy. I mean, all these guys. Were, and when I mention these names in terms of I think he's better than or elevates or whatever, I'm not, I'm not saying these guys are chumps. I'm not saying Yao Ming's a chump. The man is a Hall of Famer. I'm not saying Nate Thurman is a chump. The man's a legend. I'm not saying Bob Lanier is overrated. The man's great. I'm not saying Walt Bellamy shouldn't deserve to be amongst one of the greatest centers who's ever played because he is. This is the projectory I see Joel and B taking even as of right now, even though you could say that his NBA career is still in the early stages of of his of his uh, life expectancy in terms of what he's going to be bringing to the table as an NBA basketball player. Winning a championship, that's going to elevate him near some of the legacies of Bill Walton or Alonzo Mourning or Robert Parrish or Dave Cowens. Wes Unseld, Willis Weed, Willis Weed, Willis Reed, my main man Patrick Ewing. He wins two championships in the next couple of years. Well, and he keeps doing what he's doing. Only Kareem, Bill, Wilt, Shaq, and Hakeem are the only people I can see that's not going to uh that's gonna be uh, above him. And you also have to say that look, putting him on the same level as Moses Malone or David Robinson, there you go. There you go two of the all-time greats, and winning a championship would also put him ahead in the lead in terms of who's the greatest center of his generation after Shaq. Because right now, it's coming down to himself and Nikola Jokic. If Embiid wins himself a championship, as great as Jokic is, yeah, Jokic has that MVP, no doubt about it. But man, what's more important to you? That MVP or that... um, NBA championship and of course other semantics go into that as in you know if Embiid wins the MVP of the playoffs during a championship series what do you regard higher what do you put more stock in an MVP for the season or an MVP for a championship uh, run again if you're speaking about two of the all time greats I'm not speaking about Andre Iguodala winning an MVP type of well where does he stand the angles of great uh, NBA basketball players I'm speaking about when you're trying to decipher, when you're trying to have that argument in terms of you have the Embiid lovers and you have the Jokic lovers in terms of their games, and we start speaking about and we start shouting about and we start screaming about and we start arguing about who's better as far as their NBA careers are so far, people are going to say for Jokic, MVP, MVP, MVP of the season, MVP. Well, man, you're talking about Embiid, the way he's going, winning himself a regular season MVP this season, and then getting himself that NBA championship before Jokic. Jokic is going to be one of the all-time greats when everything is said and done, whether he wins a championship or not. I mean, that's going to be a big, 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 big bullet in that chamber of the fire when you're speaking about all-time greats. So the only thing that's going to stop him is health. He's never played more than 64 games, speaking about Embiid. He's never played more than 64 games in the season. He should never play more than 72 games for the rest of his career. I don't I don't give a damn. If I'm the Philadelphia 76ers and I want to max out Joel Embiid, I'm sorry. Yeah, you can go ahead and talk about will play 48 minutes one season or average 48 minutes for one season and the greats never missed a game and all this kind of nonsense. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. I'm paying Joel Embiid how much money? Yeah, I'm going to make sure that I get the biggest return on my investment which means that we don't need for Joel Embiid to be playing 82 games we need to have him healthy rip roaring and ready to go 
when the NBA playoffs start. If that means that during the regular season, he plays only 68, 64, 60 games, fine. Who cares? Because we're all about winning championships now. We're not worried about uh, what's happening in the regular season. So that's the that's the only thing. That's the only thing moving forward. So yeah, man, it's it's a uh, it's a tricky situation moving ahead with the uh, Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers. The Philadelphia 76ers, you have that window of opportunity. A lot of legacies on the line when you're speaking about Moray, Doc Rivers, Joel Embiid. James Harden, two to three to four years. Can you get it done? You better be able to get it done. segment of the podcast Wendell's World in Sports so glad that you could be with us thank you so much y'all I'm speaking about Brooklyn trading for Ben Simmons in Philadelphia trading for Harden let me tell you now this show sure ain't starting let's Let's talk about the NBA. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. Good Lord, even even my eyes are bleeding after listening to that garbage. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So one more point I want to make before I get into the Harden, or excuse me, the um, Brooklyn Nets trading for Ben Simmons. One thing I think that both Daryl Morey and James Harden are going to have to realize is that Look, man, this is Joel Embiid's team. And ever since coming over from Oklahoma City long, long time ago before James Harden became the James Harden that we all know in the annals of NBA history and such, look, man, this is not going to be a situation where James Harden is going to have free reign to do whatever he wanted to do when he was with the Houston Rockets. This is Joel Embiid's time. Now, all of a sudden, we run on Joel Embiid feelings and emotions in time and such. And there ain't going to be some... James Harden isn't going to have a say-so in um, what time does the plane leave or are we going to be staying in this city a little bit longer than usual, James, when the Rockets were playing in, oh, I don't know, L.A. or maybe Miami would sometimes kind of say like, hey, you know what, uh, let's leave in the morning. Let's not leave after right after the game because, you know, we've got South Beach, we've got L.A. There's some things that I want to do as far as my nightlife is concerned to where, uh, yeah, we're not going to be leaving just yet. And because of the importance that Harden had on the organization in Houston, they were like, fine. If James Harden wanted to uh, show up late and if James Harden wanted to do whatever the hell that he wanted to do, James Harden 
was allowed to do that. Now in Philadelphia, mm-mm, no, son, I don't give a damn how important you are in terms of Philadelphia winning this championship. I don't care how much money you're going to be making. I don't give a damn about all of that. As long as Joel Embiid is un, on this franchise and doing what he's doing, this is going to be Joel Embiid's basketball team. It was the same realization that Kevin Durant had when he came over from the Oklahoma City Thunder to join the Steph Curry-led Golden State Warriors. KD might have been the best basketball player on that team. It didn't matter. It was Steph Curry's team. What the organization went by was Curry time, not KD time. So even if James comes over and he's got Daryl Morey in terms of in his corner and the relationship that they have and everything that they've done for each other in terms of the success of their careers with Morey going out and getting James Harden and putting him in a situation from being a six-man in Oklahoma City to being the man, the franchise guy, believing in Harden being the franchise guy, taking him from Oklahoma City to uh, play in Houston, everything that he's meant for his career, both for James Harden and for Daryl Morey, that stuff doesn't matter anything. It doesn't matter a hunk of darn because this is going to be uh, Joel Embiid's team. So this is not a situation when Dwight Howard and Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook were joining James Harden's team. And one of the discontents about the two friends from Los Angeles who grew up being homeboys and all that kind of stuff. So when Westbrook was traded to the Houston Rockets, that everything was going to be great and everything was going to be fine because of the relationship that they had off the court and the friendship that they had off the court. And then it was quickly realized to Westbrook that when Harden got to do whatever the hell that he wanted and was messing around with the type of uh, discipline that Russell Westbrook had in terms of being a professional, in terms of being that guy who was part of the team, he was like, get me out of here. That's where that soured. You know, the situation where it's like, if you can't get along with James, we're going to say bye-bye to you because this is James Harden's team. It's not like that now in Philadelphia. Uh-uh, if James Harden doesn't like Joel Embiid doing this, that, and the other with the team, it isn't going to be a situation where he's going to run up to Daryl Morey and say, get uh, Joel Embiid out of here. No, uh-uh, because the worst comes to worst. If this thing really doesn't work, if this thing can't coexist between Embiid and Harden, guess who's going to be going? Joel has the get rid of James Harden button. And all he needs to do if Harden gets on his nerves enough is to go ahead and push that button. James Harden doesn't have a get rid of Joel Embiid button. Or if he does, that button's not going to work. So if Embiid's going to say, you know what, I can't deal with this, Daryl. I can't work with this guy. Get me out of here. Either he goes or I go. Period. Guess who's leaving? It ain't going to be Joel. So hopefully... Mr. Harden can understand and realize that and adapt to it because I don't know where he's going to go after this. He couldn't, he couldn't get rid of Kyrie and KD. You know, he, he couldn't do that. So he jettisoned that relationship. If he doesn't like what's happening with uh, Joel Embiid's team, I don't know where else he's going to go. I don't know where else he's going to go and have the opportunity to win the championship, especially after he signed that contract extension. Wendell's world in sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I'll get into some of the other stuff, man, about, you know, my Wizards trading for Christoph Porzingis and the Demontis Sabonis trade. And I'll get into, into all that type of stuff. Now that the Super Bowl is finally over, now this is going to be really a NBA-centric type of podcast, especially since with college basketball, my Georgetown Hoyas are a joke and an embarrassment and they stink out loud. So my my attention to college basketball has really waned because when you watch Georgetown play, you really don't want to do anything except 
ball up in the corner and cry uncontrollably after watching that squad play. So I guess I'm going to have to go ahead and do a little bit more, paying attention a little bit more to college basketball. But uh, for the next uh, couple of podcasts, it's all going to be about the NBA because without football anymore, sure, I'll still be talking football stuff, but um, NBA is going to take center stage. So I'll be talking about McCollum going to the um, New Orleans Pelicans and all that good stuff uh, later on down the road. I just want to concentrate on the, the on the huge deals, which is going to have significant impact on this year's playoffs. Spoke about the Philadelphia 76ers acquiring James Harden. Very quickly going to be speaking about the Brooklyn Nets getting themselves Ben Simmons um, from the one point. Yeah, it looks good. It sounds good in terms of on paper, in terms of, hey, you know what? The fit that Ben Simmons is going to have. But there's just some questions that I have. And look, I, I, I think long term, and as I mentioned this before, another podcast when I was speculating in terms of before the speculation became the reality of the trade between Philadelphia and Brooklyn was Harden going to Philadelphia, Ben Simmons going to the Brooklyn Nets. I said this like, yeah, I would rather have Ben Simmons with all of his warts, with all of his quirkiness. With all of the, uh, with his unique personality and some of his other stuff going on, swirling around with him, I would rather have Ben Simmons for the Brooklyn Nets, especially if I'm going to try to maximize the Kyrie KD tree, uh, situation. I would rather have Ben Simmons, especially two, three, four years down the road, than James Harden. Simmons is on a better contract. He's younger. He's more versatile if you take both offensively and defensively. James Harden is an offensive whiz, genius, and all those type of things. Defensive end, not so much. Even when James Harden is trying just a little bit, not so much in terms of his strength being playing any type of defense whatsoever. And if his body doesn't hold up and as he gets older, if he gets discontent or whatever, uh, we, we've seen the train wreck, which is James Harden on defense. You don't need to do that as far as Ben Simmons on defense. Ben Simmons on offense might resemble James Harden on defense in terms of his inability to make an impact in his competence level. But on defense, Ben Simmons could be the James Harden of offense in terms of what he brings, his ability to guard multiple positions, guard the perimeter players, guard the front court players, guard the back to the basket players, his ability to see the game as far as an offensive skill point in terms of passing is concerned, moving the ball around, his ability to be a one-man fast break, adding some athleticism, his youth. Uh, all of those things are fantastic. All of those things are going to be advantageous for the Brooklyn Nets as they move forward to try to win this championship. I'm not too worried about the fit as far as Ben Simmons is that is concerned, especially if we're speaking about moving on to next year and the next year, because just like the Philadelphia 76ers with KD and Kyrie, and Kyrie still has not um, extended his contract with Brooklyn, but just let's just say that he goes ahead and he does that because KD and Kyrie have this bond together and they wanted to play together. It wasn't KD, Kyrie, and James Harden. It was KD, Kyrie, and, De- and DeAndre Jordan. DeAndre now with the Los Angeles Lakers, but this is a situation where, hey, you know what? If Kyrie is a man of his word, debatable, questionable, and he's speaking about, I want to play with KD, I want to play with KD, I want to play, I want to play with KD. I'm going to go on the assumption that Kyrie is going to sign that contract extension, which, in my opinion, gives Brooklyn 
I gave Philadelphia three years with Harden and Embiid. I'll say four. I'll go four with um, Brooklyn in terms of the trio of Ben Simmons, KD, and Kyrie giving their best opportunity, having their best opportunity to win a championship. My, my, my only thing, so, so long-term, I think, as I mentioned before, even if you think Philadelphia won the trade by getting James Harden, it could be a situation where Philadelphia won the race, but Brooklyn is going to win the marathon, if you understand what I'm saying with the acquisition of Ben Simmons. Here's my only thing, though, man, is that when you, when you take a look at this, first of all, just going for this year, many people, I think, when the trade first went down and the news was related to the public that Ben Simmons is going to be going over and he's going to be playing for the Brooklyn Nets, that's great. Now, many people thought that we were going to be seeing the best of Ben Simmons or what we thought of the glass-half-full type of Ben Simmons being playing for the Brooklyn Nets this year. Well, do we really know what type of shape both physically and mentally, that Ben Simmons is going to be in? I mean, he, it doesn't matter. He's not in game shape. You, you you can't miss seven months of playing NBA basketball and then come in and then in a week or two be back to where you were before peak uh, playing condition. It's going to take some time. So we don't know exactly when Ben Simmons is going to be able to play for the Brooklyn Nets and have the impact that I think people are going to be expecting Ben Simmons to have once he joins that club. And there's still the situation of him having uh, mental issues. Um, you might say that it's cowardice. You might say that, oh, it's just because he's hiding because he's afraid to be booed by the Philadelphia 76ers fan base or he doesn't want to face his teammates or whatever. The situation with him having the um, seeking out mental help is for real. It's, it's for real. It's DeMar Rosen, Kevin Love's... Uh, Naomi Osaka type of real. He's not running away from anything. He's not being cowardless in, in cowardness in, in that type of deal. This is a situation where, you know, mentally we don't know exactly where Ben Simmons is. Now he said that uh, speaking to Steve Nash and speaking to Kevin Durant and such that he's excited and he's happy to um, join the team, but we don't know exactly when that's going to be. And both physically and mentally, we don't know when he's going to be able this season, at least we don't know when he's going to be able to make make that impact. I think years down the road, I think he's going to be great. I think he's going to be fantastic. Thank the Lord. Thank in uh, and, and Ben Simmons' regard that the Brooklyn Nets are not the New York Knicks because it's a situation like the Yankees and the Mets, like the Rangers and the Islanders in New York, like the Lakers and the Clippers in Los Angeles, I think there's always going to be big brother, little brother, regardless of how fantastic little brother becomes. And regardless of how dysfunctional the Knicks are, I think that the New York Knicks are always going to be the center of attention in the New York metropolitan area. So Ben Simmons is not going to have to face some of the scrutiny, even though he's going to be playing in the number one media market in the world which is New York City, he's not going to be facing the same type of pressure that if he would have played for the New York Knicks. He's not going to even face the same type of pressure, I don't believe, playing in Brooklyn than he did with the Philadelphia 76ers, where he was, quote-unquote, part of the process that was going to leave Philadelphia from the doldrums and the embarrassment of putting that process together by Sam Hinkie to having it pay off with Philadelphia being a mini-dynasty and winning championships. Ben Simmons now is not going to be that guy, the spotlight, the expectations 
are not going to be put on Ben Simmons to win themselves a championship. If anybody's going to take the heat, if anybody is going to take the criticism, it's going to be A, Kyrie Irving, who's just a lightning rod for it, and B, Kevin Durant, who either seeks it out or it finds him in terms of some of the some of the uh, drama that happens between him and the media and the fans and such. So this is going to be a situation where basically Ben Simmons can play the background role. He can play the supporting cast role, which I've always thought that if Ben Simmons, to maximize Ben Simmons, I never thought that he was a uh, Batman type of guy. I never thought that he was a Robin type of guy. I thought that if you could have a franchise player and an you know, superstar player, Ben Simmons could be that all-star. Ben Simmons could be that James Worthy. Ben Simmons could be that Robert Parrish. Ben Simmons could be that um, Chris Bosh. Ben Simmons could be that guy, you know, to uh, have them win championships. He could be that Horace Grant. He could be that, um, he could be that uh, Dennis Rodman to uh, a championship basketball team, which is a perennial all-star getting it done. So that's, well, I think the best situation for Ben Simmons is going to be moving forward with the um, with the Brooklyn Nets. So, not looking too much for him to do something this season, but uh, seasons down the road, yeah, I really think um, you know when you when you're playing in the Eastern Conference and right now Miami, you've got Jimmy Butler doing a thing with the Chicago Bulls. You got Demar Derozan playing at an MVP level, and you've also got uh, Zach Levine. And the um, Milwaukee Bucks, you got Giannis. You've got all of these uh, players. They're all going to be able. Ben Simmons is all is going to be able to guard these guys. Now, I'm not telling. I'm not saying that Ben Simmons is going to quote unquote shut them down. But you know, if Boston, who got better at the uh, NBA trade deadline, they make the playoffs. I mean, someone's going to have to guard either Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum and such. So all of these situations are going to be advantageous for the Brooklyn Nets having themselves a Ben Simmons. Again, it's just a matter of Ben Simmons mentally and physically getting there. And, of course, on offense, look, you know, we've always had to deal. Kyrie needs the ball in his hands. If Ben Simmons isn't going to initiate the offense, what exactly is he going to do? He's a poor free throw shooter. Uh, There's questions about whether he can stand up to the pressure in a playoff situation. They always point back to uh, Game 7 in the Eastern Conference semifinals last uh, season against Atlanta. Same thing with James Harden. You know, we've all very well known about his playoff meltdowns on a consistent basis. Uh, You could point to the fact that, uh, you know, he's not going to have that same situation moving forward, but that's also a reason for discussion and a valid reason of uh, contention and observation and thought process with the with the Philadelphia 76ers. Same thing with Ben Simmons with the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, is this going to be a hack of Ben? I mean, you can have Kyrie, you can have KD and all that kind of stuff, but you know, in the last part of the game, when you can start having hack of Ben, it's going to minimize the effectiveness of Kyrie and Kevin Durant. And speaking of, as I end this with the Brooklyn Nets situation acquiring Ben Simmons, speaking of the Brooklyn Nets just at their team moving forward, trying to win championships, we speak about KD and Kyrie. What about Kyrie? I mean, we're going on the assumptions. We keep speaking about, yeah, Ben Simmons is going to be joining KD and Kyrie. Well, as of right now, Ben Simmons is going to be joining if Kevin Durant gets back. They say that he's inching ever closer to getting back on the court. He's going to be missing the upcoming All-Star game weekend and such. So maybe near the end of this month, we'll see Kevin Durant get back on the court. But 
We're speaking about Ben Simmons with KD and Kyrie. Well, yeah, KD, yes, but Kyrie part-time. Because Kyrie still can't play in Canada. Kyrie still can't play at home because he won't get himself vaccinated. So in a game seven, in the playoff against whether it be Philadelphia or whoever, Atlanta, Boston, whoever, Milwaukee, whoever, Chicago, Miami, whoever, if there's going to be an important game at home, well, guess what? Kyrie is not going to be there unless something drastic happens in terms of his decision to get vaccinated and help out his team or some change in the um, system as far as the laws are concerned. There's going to be an important game in the playoffs where Kyrie is not going to be there. So that's going to be more of a situation where Ben Simmons then is going to have to slip from being the third banana to the second banana. How's he going to respond to that? The situation where KD's going to have to take over again. And how many times can KD do this? So it's a, it's a, it's, mm. it, it's, it's a deal. It's a situation worth watching, worth discussing. All I know though, though, is that you had two disgruntled players who didn't want to be on their teams. And I think in a free agency class, that's going to be weak. No one, you know, Giannis is resigned as such, and, and Luca resigned as such. So there's no is no game changing, you know, NBA history alternating type of deal that could have been had. Even if you did go out and get yourself a Damian Lillard, even if Lillard didn't get injured, even if Bradley Beal didn't get injured, and they went to their organizations, their franchises, and said, "Hey, man, it's about time you get me on out of here because I'm tired of losing." Even an acquisition of those two wouldn't have changed the landscape of the league this season and moving on the next couple of seasons, I feel like the situation that happened between Brooklyn and Philadelphia because Beal or Beal or Lillard going to Philadelphia and Ben Simmons either going to Washington or Portland is not going to change the trajectory and change the history of the league like Ben Simmons going from Philadelphia to Philadelphia to Brooklyn with everything that's involved in there. So, yeah, man, that's uh, that's where I stand with that one. So, all right, I'm done. I'm out of here. Um, I want to wish everybody a happy Valentine's Day. Remember, man, because well, I'm recording this on the 14th. This is going to be published on the 14th. Hey, man, make sure once again you treat your you treat your female, you treat your uh, significant other, you treat uh, the person that you love every single day, man, like it's Valentine's Day. Every single flipping day like it's Valentine's Day. Treat him with love, treat him with respect, treat him with uh, reverence, treat him with, uh, you know, treat him with all of that. The male for the female, the female for the male. Love each other. Do all those type of things, man. Respect and unity, man, no violence, none of that kind of stuff, especially for y'all who have kids. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, make the most out of this Valentine's Day and bring it, move it forward for the other 364 days of the year. Ask her to stay. Find 100 ways. Wendell's World of Sports. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Keep smiling. Keep living. Keep doing what you need to do to make this world a better place to be through love, peace, unity, harmony, respect, and understanding for one another. Music.
compliment what she do 